a doctor and a professor walk into a Terry bar. Hello and welcome to the Riff Podcast. This is the third episode. I am your co-host Noah Levy and on today's show we are interviewing along with my co-host Rob Janik, Dr. Terry Barr, hence the two guys walking a bar joke with him being the three people actually, the bar, you know, his last name, and the fact that he's both a doctor and a professor. Ha ha! Anyway, today is going to be a very special episode because Terry is actually one of the longest serving writers at the Riff. He started a playlist series called the American Crisis Playlist for almost a year at this point. So who knows if he will continue it. It really depends on whether or not he still thinks America is in a crisis. I still think America is in a crisis because of income inequality, climate change, and a whole bunch of other shit. But hey, you know, that's just my opinion. I'm not supposed to say my opinion on this. I should probably reserve that to Terry. Anyway, I just wanted to give a really quick reminder that we are still using our phone microphones for these next handful run of episodes just because we did not get the bougie microphones until about a week or so ago and that's the microphone i'm talking to you through right now so anyway please pardon the sonic um unqualification if that's even a word i don't know i should ask terry that he's a professor in writing anyway i hope you enjoyed the show to the Riff Podcast. I'm your co-host Noah Levy along with co-host Rob Janik and today our very special guest is none other than Terry Barr um, who you know I'm laughing in my head because I almost called him Dr. Barr by accident Um, but anyway he just came out with the book Secrets I'm Dying to Tell You. Um, You can't see it but I am putting it on the camera Um, and I think everyone should read it. It's on my book list, so it should be on your book list, too. Um, And Terry is one of our staple writers at the Riff. Like, I I feel like I'm talking to a living legend, Um, so I'm personally a little nervous, but that's okay. How are you doing today, Terry? Well, after all that, (laughs) uh, I've never been called a living legend before, although some people (laughs) do call me Dr. Barr. That's okay, but I don't want you to. I know. (laughs) I'm great. I've had about 60 ounces of coffee, so I'm about as caffeined up as a person can be for this and excited to be here. You know, um, I wanted to remark, Terry, this is literally the biggest cup of coffee I think I've seen in my life, other than like one of those like giant 7-Eleven things. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a requirement in my household. How, how much coffee do you drink a day? I'll have one more of these before I teach a little bit later on. So, you know, roughly 80 ounces a day. 80 ounces. 
So does, I, don't, I don't even know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. And it's all. Ca- I, I don't drink decaf, so this is all all with caffeine. Wow. I've been yeah, drinking that's... decaf recently, and I've been having like the greatest sleeps of my life. But well, so, that that is the downside of all this. <laughs> I don't have the greatest sleeps, but Rob. <laughs> Yeah. What about your coffee drinking habits? It's it, they're they're um, significant, but um, not eighty ounces. I don't I don't go that far. Um, I pro- probably a, a normal day is three or four cups, but uh, you know they're they're decent sized mugs. I don't know how many ounces that would add up to. I don't know the size of the mugs, but three or four <laughs> good cups of coffee a day. It's a curse to know how much coffee you're drinking. And and when my wife hears this podcast, she's going to go, I've been trying so hard to get you to sleep better. And now I know why everything I try is not working. It's yeah. because of the huge coffee. But um, no, that that's so funny. Like I was thinking of like the stereotype of a professor who just like is always like super cap. So that's you. You're, you're the living embodiment of it. And I used to, when I had professors when I was undergraduate who'd always offer me cups of coffee and I didn't drink it then. I go, God, how can you drink that stuff for so long? So, yeah, now I'm on the other side. I'm always offering students coffee. So, so speaking, oh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. And begging them to bring it to class so they'll stay awake. (laughs) And there you go. That's uh, that's all that you could ask for for this generation of, of kids. I'm kidding. Um, you know, anyway, um, because I'm part of that generation, so I'm making fun of myself. Well, half kidding, because, you know, like, we're always on our phones, and we have the attention span of four-year-olds, so hopefully that'll change. Hopefully we'll get more people to read and drink coffee, but anyway, you know, I I wanted to say that before, um, but before we talked on the podcast, Terry was mentioning that he plays music like before his classes start. And I think that's like the coolest thing. So Rob and I attended Terry's um, Zoom call that was, you know, essentially like his book signing, except not really the signing part because you can't do that remotely. Um, But but, um, Terry was playing three songs before it started. And I was just surprised, honestly, when like I've never joined a Zoom call in my life where it's just like the first thing I hear is music. And I just see like Terry and his wife just like sitting there and smiling at everyone. And then there's just so many people just like sitting there probably thinking the same thing that I'm thinking like, whoa. Um, But like, do your students like the music that you play? They, it's hard to tell. Sometimes they do. Sometimes it's, you can see that they're kind of moving a little bit. Sometimes I even mention in the chat, they'll just write and go, Oh, I just love that. And as I was saying to you, usually the songs they love tend to be older songs from the 70s that they grew up with. And so they'll say things, oh, my dad plays this all the time. And I thought, yeah, that's right, because I play this all the time. And and my daughters, who are in their early 30s and, and late 20s, know all the music from the 60s and the 70s. And they like a lot of contemporary stuff and they've taught me a lot about contemporary artists. But when I, when I play Fleetwood Mac or when I play Eric Clapton or, or whatever it is, they recognize instantly who it is. And they may not, they may miss some names every now and then, but 
Uh, so one of those old songs, when my daughter got married, uh, we had to have the father-daughter you know, first dance. And so well, what's that going to be? And um, we thought, and finally I said, you know, one of those songs that we used to listen to that you always sang and I always sang was the Beatles version of Baby It's You. So uh, that's what we, that was our father-daughter dance, and it just seemed perfect. So, and my students also like, they like a lot of the contemporary, more like old style country. I'm sure they like other things too, but uh, one of them mentioned the steel drivers the other day. They really like that. And the the redone Taylor Swift. Uh, so I'll, I'll catch the sweet spot there of what they like and what I'm learning to like. Interesting. And I want to mention that on that podcast, the first song that was playing when most people got on was uh, George Clinton's Atomic Dog. And I, the guy who is in the story and his partner, Jimbo and Michael, I could see them up in the screen. They come on and they're immediately dancing to that song. And so if only my students would do that, maybe I should be playing more funk from the 70s and and that would do it for them. Well, I, I was going to say, um, Terry, when I got onto the call, I think uh, I think that was the song that was playing. I think I got on right around that time. And then, um, Noah, to your point and in, in your question about it, it almost it, it felt right to me. I didn't you know, obviously, I never met Terry in person and know him through the riff and his writing um about music and other topics as well but mainly music so it was a bit of a shock because like you said you don't go on to a zoom call expecting to hear music with nothing else happening but it made sense for me that it was terry doing it and i the 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 feeling i got from it was you know when you're sitting in a theater you know ready to see like um an intimate show like maybe an acoustic show or something like that you know they're just playing music right it's the 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 uh, before the, the band or the artist comes out, there's music playing and you feel like you feel the anticipation, right? So, you know, something cool is about to happen because the music is just setting that mood. And I always tell Terry this, um, uh, via the, the, the comments on some of the stories, his writing puts you into whatever he's talking about. It just does. Like you're there, you're almost watching it. Um, the words turn into these visuals. So listening to music, it's like, yeah, this makes sense. I'm right there. I'm doing exactly what he's doing in that moment, waiting for all this to start. It put you in the room, if that makes sense. That's the feeling I got. So to me, it made a ton of sense. You know, honestly, um, like this is just like a symptom of terror or a description of Terry's writing in general, because like from the book reading, I don't know about you, Rob, but I felt like I was on the road trip with them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yep. Well, that, that means a lot to me because that is what I was trying for. And the, I think it was the night before the reading, my in-laws were over and we, we had gotten some takeout. We were sitting out on our back porch screened in with these, beautiful little lights that we've hooked up and I was playing uh, that soundtrack to searching for wrong eyed Jesus. And my brother-in-law who's almost 80, it's so hard to believe that but he was listening to it and said, this is such nice music. 
And I thought, yeah, it really is. It just relaxes everything. So then I thought, I kind of drifted away from their conversation, I thought. So that is what I want to do to start uh, the book reading. I want to play some music. I want it to be almost like a little variety show so that here's some songs. These songs are not just songs that I like, but they're instrumental to the story I'm about to tell because they're what I would be listening to while I was writing. And the Going Up the Country, the Canned Heat song, was how I decided to frame that whole story by thinking about that song and what it means to, you know, you translate for yourself what it means to go up the country. For me, going up the country was already starting out kind of in the country in Bessemer, Alabama, and taking back roads. Uh, Bessemer is almost a back road itself. So when you're starting to talk about taking back roads out of Bessemer, you know what the roads are going to look like. They're just going to go on and wind, and you're thinking, I might not ever get anywhere. Or I might just be on this road forever. And I thought, but if that's what happens, then I can't think of much I'd rather have happen to me if I've got family or friends in the car with me and we're just seeing what happens. So that's that's what we have always done. And those those guys who are in the car with me on that story, that's what we would do in high school. That's what we would do in college when we got together. We might not we might end up going some other place a bar or a movie but most of the time we'd be in the car and we'd be listening to music and we'd have it cranked up and that that's kind of our friendship so when you pull into my neighborhood i'll know it's you because you're like the loud car yeah you will you will it'll be really <laughs> that's what my wife says i know you're home uh because i can hear you coming up the street with whatever the music is yeah that's so funny. Well, what is um what's like a recent um musician that has like really touched you that that you've listened to recently? I, I know you write about them obviously in the riff, but like you have to pick one this time because you, you pick so many usually. So I'm not gonna give you that luxury today. Well, the ones that I can't quit listening to right now are particularly the handsome family. Um and like I wrote about, I showed that film two years ago to my Southern film class, The Searching for Wrong-Eyed Jesus, which is, it's, you can't really, it's kind of an avant-garde film. It's a non-narrative. You, you think at first it's going to be a narrative. Oh, we're searching for this thing, whatever wrong-eyed Jesus means. But it's really just an excuse to explore the rural South and see what you're going to come up with. And so... As I watched the film, I was really interested in the visuals, but I was more interested in the soundtrack. And I kept listening to all these songs. There, there is um, there is a song where a woman is sitting on her trunk, uh, opened trunk, in a station wagon, and she's playing "Amazing Grace" on a saw. So there's that. And then there's this interesting duet in a barbershop beauty salon where one guy is singing and then the camera switches to the woman in the beauty salon and they're having a good give and take. But um, this this song that I wrote about My Sister's Tiny Hands by the Handsome Family is a song I kept coming back to. And I didn't know much about the Handsome Family. I didn't even know then that they had done the theme to the first season of HBO's True Detective. But I would just listen to that song, and then I downloaded everything I could get by the Handsome Family. And I haven't made it through everything yet because this is fairly recently. But um, 
whichever song I listened to almost becomes a new favorite. And what I learned was that early on, they just recorded everything in their living room. That's a husband and wife. And he suffered some kind of mental breakdown, but recovered. And they keep making music. But if you listen to my sister's tiny hands, this is the kind of music that I love the most. It's sad, it's haunting, but the images are visceral. You You can feel them, you can see them. You have everything, and that's the kind of thing I want to do in the prose that I write about uh, this this kind of music. So it's the handsome family for me right now, and I can't get enough of them, and particularly that song, My Sister's Tiny Hands. I'm singing it, and I'm hearing it on an endless loop. <clears throat> you know, um, I was I had a question that I wanted to ask you, and I'm still going to, but I think you just answered it. Um, but I, I want to be specific about the question because I've always wondered this um, about you based on not just your writing or your writing style, but the, the type of music you write about, or at least what you're writing about at the riff. Uh, because I know like all of us, we all have all, you know, our musical tastes can go in so many different directions. But, you know, like Noah's question, you almost have to just kind of focus on one thing at a time. Um, when music hits you, um because of your storytelling way of your writing are you a lyric person first and a music person second like do the lyrics do something to you and capture you and this is what drew you into the song or is it the music and what you just said about um the song you were describing i feel like i know the answer but i always wanted to ask you that question like what part of a song hits you first and does that influence how you write about music I'm going to try to be, I I hope this is right, because as you were asking that question, I felt three or four different answers floating through. (laughs) I'm going to say it's, it could be the sound. It's usually the voice. Mm -hmm. There are some instrumental songs, of course, but it's usually the voice. And so with my sister's tiny hands, when I first heard that, that voice, I I thought, God, what is what is this voice? What's happening here? And so that's what drew me first. Um, It could be the lyrics. If I go back and think about the various versions, for instance, of um, the great song uh, Walk Away, Renee, and I particularly think of uh, the Four Tops version of it. Uh, But when I think of those lyrics, and how beautiful and sad and just longing they are, then I would answer, well, it's the lyrics for sure. But I also know that there are certain sounds. So, for instance, one of my all-time favorite songs uh, is Neil Young's Cinnamon Girl. So as soon as that song launches, I don't know how you could not like the song. I don't know how you could not want to play air guitar for those of us who don't play guitar. Um, And... So I, I don't know how to answer that, Rob, other than the songs are individual pieces. They're going to hit me in the way that they hit me. It could be the voice. It's certainly going to be the lyrics at some point. But but these days, the lyrics are almost the last thing. And so I have to like the sound. I have to like the voice. And then I start studying the lyrics. Interesting. And it is, it, 
<laughs> it is a good answer. I know you, you, you started with that, but uh, it's a good answer because it, it, it's tough. It's a tough thing to nail down one specific. The reason I was even wondering is because, um, like Noah and I said earlier, your writing puts us in the story. And typically, I would think that comes from the lyrics. Um, but I completely understand what you mean about the music and the, and the voice. One of the first musicians I ever loved and it's because of what my mom was playing in the house was Elvis. And mm -hmm. he didn't write anything. He didn't write music. He didn't write lyrics. He was singing other people's songs, but his voice did something that I don't still, I don't know that I can explain it to this day. I regardless of what the words were, what he was singing about, um, his voice was what grabbed me. Um, so I get it. I get that certain songs or certain artists will, will hit you with a different uh, part of what they're doing. Well, I will say that with Neil Young particularly, who has been my favorite artist ever since I was about 15, and I might stray from Neil Young, and then I'll come back to him. I, I know his lyrics the best of any rock performer short of the Beatles that have just been in my life almost ever since I was, what, six. Um, but... I don't always understand Neil Young's lyrics. Uh, my other favorite Neil Young song is Cowgirl in the Sand. And, you know, you just, I don't know that they need to make sense. Purple words on a gray background, for instance, uh, to be a woman and to be let down. So I'm not quite sure what that means. But when I hear the lyrics, I know where I go with them. I know what the visual I get. And so that's what I think when I first started on on medium writing about music, I was writing about a lot of things, but I would listen to music and all of a sudden it occurred to me, why don't you write about the music that you're listening to and explain what that's all about? And so I started with songs like that that meant a lot to me. Then I, then I kept evolving into writing about what it's like to look for the one LP that you can't find and what happens when you find it or... What about the live shows and what it's meant to see that? Or friends who I, I've grown up with who've listened to similar music or who've pushed me to listen to other things. So um, I know that I know that for me, it started with those lyrics and singing to them and then thinking about, well, I might get the lyrics wrong or I might that might not be what the writer was meaning, but I know where it takes me and uh, those are really interesting places to think about and to write about. So um, that's what Neil Young has pushed me into and what so many other writers, and, and again, what Taylor Swift is doing right now. So I'm thinking a whole lot about uh, her lyrics and why I didn't listen to her at first and, and why I'm listening to her now. So, so let's talk about that. So, so could you give us the breakdown or the rundown of why you weren't listening to Taylor Swift so much before, why you're listening to her a lot more today, what you used to think of her versus what you think of her now and what you think her future is going to be? Well, so my daughters have been listening to her for ever since she came out, however many years that's been, what's been 12, almost 15 years. Yeah. Almost. Yeah, yeah, it's just, it's. But they would listen to her like they would listen to their their favorite um, 
Sirius XM station is the highway. So they would listen to that and I would hear what I would consider these really awful contemporary country songs uh, and just kind of go, oh, that's just, and I, I was resistant to it. And so I thought, okay, if you want to listen to country songs, let's listen to Willie's Roadhouse and let's really hear some country songs. And they were resistant to that because they don't want to hear Merle Haggard from the 60s necessarily or or whoever else they're playing. So we just kind of got, eh. And so then we'd end up listening to something pop that we could kind of go, all right, that's all right. So I just consigned Taylor Swift to this pop country what i didn't want to hear and i just i just judged that she has nothing to say or her sound is not anything that's terribly unique um and so it took though listening to her latest records um <clears throat> and, and me kind of giving her a chance once they apple branded her as alternative i guess i thought all right what do they mean alternative this is taylor swift and so I started listening and thought, okay, those songs are haunting. She's doing, she's got um, the National doing songs with her. She's got other artists doing songs with her, Bonnie Vare. And I'm not a huge Bonnie Vare fan, but the song that they do together is, is pretty amazing. I, I think listening to Cardigan was, I thought, okay, well, there's more to her than that. That's a good image. That makes me feel pretty good. So let me just open it up. So then I started listening to the older country. I started listening to 1989, which I love. Welcome to New York City is just on my must-hear playlist right now when I'm always you know, thinking of something fun and kind of make me feel good. So I'm... Um, I don't know, still don't know a whole lot about her, but I know that I'm just ready to hear whatever she's going to do and consider her records from last year some of the best I heard. Noah, that, that's a great topic um, to talk about. And Terry, I think you, you put it perfectly as to uh, why you were resistant at first and where you, you've ended up. And I think... A lot of that, I'm pretty sure a lot of that has to do with, you know, the music we grow up with. You mentioned, you know, you loved music since you were six. And I'm, I'm like you, I can go as far back as about six or seven as well. Um, and then really into your teens, I think, is when you're really kind of maybe coming of age a bit. And, you know, the circumstances that you're living in and the music of that time will never leave you. And that's what we hold on to. So when we get older and like you and I, Terry, we have kids and our kids are, are listening to something else. It's not ours. It's yeah. theirs. And we don't we don't have that emotional connection. And that's what's so great about the riff as as a publication uh, and even as a concept, because people talk about their emotional connections to music and why they became so emotionally attached in the first place. Noah is a perfect example of that with Radiohead. I was a very big radio. I still am a very big Radiohead fan, but reading all of his his takes, being younger than than I am, and discovering them much later than than I did, uh, it brought me back to them. I hadn't put them on in quite a bit or quite a while, and uh, it's it's yeah. I think timing of when we find music and where we are in our lives that's what sticks with us. That's why you know the Beatles and Neil Young for you. Uh, will never leave and i totally get that but it's great that you're open to listening to something new and something that kind of seemed bubblegum at first 
and then being open enough, open-minded enough to discover that, hey, yeah, there's there's something deeper here. Well, you have to remember your own bubblegum experiences. So everyone, when they first start listening to music, they're too young to know a lot about complexity if they're average people. And so they like what they like. They like what is bouncy, what makes them feel good. And God knows when I was 13, I had Archie's records. So if you're going to listen to the Archie's, you know, how can you possibly condemn anyone who's going to listen to someone like Taylor Swift or, or whomever? And, you know, in 1969, there was hardly a bigger hit than Sugar Sugar or Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline or the first couple of Jackson 5 records. Uh, I mean, listen to ABC or I Want You Back. And those are just great pop records. There, There's absolutely nothing wrong with them. They're infectious. And I loved them all. And But I had friends back then, particularly white friends, male friends, who would not listen to pop at all, would not listen to AM radio at all. It had to be heavy. It had to be Black Sabbath. And I couldn't get into Black Sabbath. I just thought, okay, well, this is not very interesting to me for whatever reason. So we had a lot of gaps, some of us, about what our tastes were. And, you know, I wanted to be a, a tough hippie white guy too and like that kind of stuff. So I could stretch as far as Deep Purple, but I couldn't go to Black Sabbath. They could stretch with me a little bit. So we could all agree, for instance, that Santana was really good. But why Santana was good might be different for each person. But I, I just was not going to go as far as they were going to go and listen to all this screeching stuff that I didn't care for. I wanted the lyrics to make sense. And so... I would listen to a lot of solo John Lennon records, too, that my friends just couldn't take. But John Lennon meant a lot to me. And I thought he's really trying to explain his pain and what he's going through. And so even at age 15, I thought an artist is trying to explain their pain. There's something here. Little did I know that this is the kind of stuff that not only would I listen to, but it's the kind of literature I would actually gravitate towards, too. Are you still very, like that? Where you? Oh, sorry, Rob. No, I, I was just no. Nope, I was just going to say very interesting. I, 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 it was, uh, and I, I'll talk about Lennon later on. But go ahead, Noah. That was a, a very interesting comment. So, 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 are are you still kind of like um, with bands like Black Sabbath? Do you still have that view of you know I can't take the screeching or I can't take that style of music? Now they kind of sound sound tame now, but I, I did download. <laughs> I did download Paranoid uh, and thought, ah, that's not so bad. It's all right. Uh, it's still not the thing I most want to listen to. But, you know, I'll play it every now and then. I think I even put it on one of my personal playlists that I play around here. Just like I, I hate to bring his name up because he got into so much trouble over the past year, which I didn't know about, which I'm really kind of sad about. But... Um, I, I dabbled a little bit into Marilyn Manson just because I wanted, when I first saw their first video, I thought I, I was horrified. I, I didn't know what was going on. I thought, you know, and it sounded histrionic then. It does not sound so histrionic now. But I thought when I first saw the videos, there's a bunch of Nazis uh, running around. I didn't know what the story was. 
And so then I saw Marilyn Manson on Bill Maher one night and thought, wow, uh, Marilyn Manson is a much more interesting figure. And he was interviewed in Michael Moore's Bowling for Columbine. And and he became the boogeyman in that because some of the, those kids were listening to his music and rage rock. And he said, yeah, yeah, guns are not the problem. I'm the problem. And well, he is kind of a problem today because we've discovered what else he's been doing. But I did think his song, The Beautiful People, was really worth uh, taking some pains over and listening to. So I'll go that far. But I also want to, that's why I keep going back to the handsome family. You can be dark. You can talk about some pretty on-the-edge stuff. But you can do it in a musically interesting way that uh, while I'm listening to it, I'm going to feel a rush of different emotions. I'm not just going to feel rage. I'm not just going to feel sadness. I'm going to feel, how is it possible that you can feel such joy in a song about a guy losing his sister to a poisonous snake and then burning the place down? And, and yet I listen to that song and just go, man, I feel, I feel alive. You know, um, that reminds me that what you just said about how you can feel certain ways about a song of such, you know, horror and sadness and, and all that. Um, now, I don't know that music uh, um, particularly, but I think we're, we're going to wind up talking about the same thing. When I listen to the early and original Misfits with Glenn Danzig, um, his subject matter is is haunting and and scary and it's terrible actually the things he's singing about but he is basically chunking up 1950s rock and roll which has you know these great tempos this the, the beautiful melodies to sing along to and sometimes when you listen to that you what you're singing because it's just so catchy and then you catch the words and you're like uh, he's talking about killing babies like i i don't under how, how does this work? How can I feel so good about this and yet feel so horrified at the same time? And music does that. It's very interesting when, a, when an artist can find that, that, that combination. It's almost like what Bad Religion does or any, any political band where um, they're singing about heavy, real, cultural, societal you know, topics that could really bring you down. But they do it in such a way that um, somehow, like you said, makes you feel good. And it's you just, I don't want to say you struggle with it because we keep, we keep going back and listening to it, but it's, it's, a, it's a very artistic way of getting their point across. And, and I like when music does that. I think The Clash is Straight to Hell is another one of those songs for me. So if you listen to the lyrics of that song, you're talking about soldiers in Vietnam who had sex with Vietnamese women and had these children, these Amerasian children that are just condemned. They, they are not wanted by their society. The American fathers didn't want them either. The Amerasian children are, they're just going straight to hell because their lives now are so bleak and so unwanted. And yet the song is done to this kind of semi-reggae beat that in using you know some of these instruments that seems upbeat. And I remember when The Clash performed that song on Saturday Night Live and there was Joe Strummer in his modified mohawk doing this kind of weird chanting and straight to hell. And I loved it. And one of my best friends loved it. But he said some of his friends who watched it thought, 
what is that? And they were so turned off by maybe Strummer's appearance, maybe the sound, maybe something that they didn't understand. And so I thought, well, that appeals to me. That song appeals to me because its politics are not so much in your face and yet they're clear. And it's something that while they're certainly a British band, they're commenting on what America is and what America's done. I was on a call yesterday about the insurrection at the Capitol with some of my colleagues and they were saying, you've got to be able to critique your country if you're going to live here and if you're going to be honest and your critique doesn't mean that you don't love it. It just means that you want to really get inside and understand why things are happening. So a song like straight to hell made a lot of sense to me because this is one of the vestiges of Vietnam that we did this. And so writing about it, critiquing it, I, but still listening to that song, I sing through the whole song when I listen to it. I don't feel, I feel sad in a way, but I also feel inspired because I know how deeply the clash took this, how seriously they took it. And I think the song really works and it shows you how multidimensional that band particularly was. Well said, completely agree, especially about the clash and what they were able to do um, with their music. And I think it, it becomes something of Maybe it is um, done on purpose. I don't know. Maybe artists understand that to be complex and to be um, serious, you need to wrap it in a package that isn't so complex or serious. Um, maybe it's inherent. Maybe they do, you know, they, uh, it just comes out that way or, or, or it's um, something they do on purpose. I don't know. But, uh, or a combination of both. But that's the great thing. One of the great things about music is that you get to dissect all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, meeting Noah and, and meeting you and meeting the rest of the writers uh, and readers um, of the riff. It, again, it just becomes this um, community. I mean, that's really what it is, you know, digital or not. Um, that's what it is. And we get to share these things. And it's... Everybody has this common thread. It's very interesting. And age, gender, um, uh, socioeconomic, political, it doesn't matter where anybody seems to be coming from in, in their personal lives when it comes to music uh, and the way we want to discuss it. Um, it just it clicks with everyone so far that I can tell. I mean, Noah, do you think that that's something that you've seen and and hoped would happen when you started this publication yeah i i mean i just think that like even for people like me who you know up until like the past year and a half or so weren't so like musically active or, or like you know proactive in discovering music like music has still had a very positive impact on my life you know like i um grew up listening to a lot of these like 80s pop rock people like bon jovi and aerosmith and you know i had really good memories listening to these bands and um you know when i went through like you know my own personal turmoil um and then you know i listened to the red hot chili peppers um, that, like during the personal turmoil, that's when I was like, holy shit, like this is literally like uh, medicine 
right? And, and so, you know, I, I realized that, like, everyone has had at least one experience related to music with, with this. But, um, yeah, you know, actually, this kind of makes me think about, um, I read in Joe Perry's memoir, um, I read in Joe Perry's memoir about um, he, at the time, I, I forgot, like, what he did with this band, but he talked about this band um, based in an African country, um, and there was a documentary on this band, and they used these, um, they, they just used, like, different instruments like different African instruments and he said that it was like a very beautiful sound and you know just kind of reminded me of like oh my god like you know this is global you know like you don't need like a guitar you don't need um a microphone um if you're in Australia because you know I'm so fascinated by this instrument but like you don't need a didgeridoo right like you you, you could you could play any sort of instrument um and, you know, make it sound good. I mean, just because I use my French press as my stand for these podcasts, you know, like um, I like the other weekend, I was like using it as a percussion instrument, you know, like just for fun. And it makes pretty cool sounds like I, I think that honestly and, and not to pivot the conversation, but this is actually something I'm a little worried about, just kind of like the corporatization of musical instruments. Like I, I feel like when I was learning guitar and I did not know anything about music theory, um, you know, like I was just like really obsessed with becoming like a better guitarist. But now that I know a decent amount of music theory, my view is the opposite. My view is that I want to learn more about how to make as good music as possible, regardless of the means. And so I, I think what's interesting is that, and you know, Rob, I, I sent you that video, is that there are just so many choices that we have to make music out of like anything in our lives. Like, like we could take springs from a pen and we could attach it to the metal strings of our guitars. Um, I dropped one of my springs. I guess I'll get that after the podcast. <laughs> but, you, you know, anyway, um, and, and then we could have um, the harmonics reflect on the spring as we, like, pluck um, one of the strings. So I, I think that's very interesting. Like, I think that there's just so many different ways that one can make music. But I, I, I'm starting to see that in order from like an instrument playing perspective like if you want to have a deeper appreciation of music i think everyone should learn music theory um instead of like just the instrument because then you start seeing like all these possibilities of like you could like make makeshift instruments and make music out of those makeshift instruments yeah that's what i was telling my class so i teach um the class i keep referring to is a course in southern gothic literature and it's it's such a wonderful area to delve into because it's haunting you can do faulkner you can do some of the more recent artists um, or writers like emma walsh or chris offit who are just delving into what rural life is like in the south and so when i played the handsome family when i played the song where the young woman is performing Amazing Grace, and she's using a non-traditional instrument. I had them guess what she was playing. 
And so I have two sections. No one in the first section could guess what this woman was playing. One person in the second section guessed. And so this is how transcendent the music is to me. The one person who guessed was this guy from New York. He's, I think he actually grew up in either Brooklyn or the Bronx, an African-American guy. And so he's listened to it and said, that sounds like a saw. And I'm, and I'm wondering, how did you know that sounded like a saw? No one else did. So it's transcendent. It defies stereotypes. But I, I suggested to them, if you live so far out in the country and if you're poor, music's going to find you. You can always sing, but you can't afford to buy. You may be able to make a guitar, may be able to make some kind of other instrument, but you're going to have to figure out what else to play if you want to play along, whether that's some of the things that you mentioned, jugs, pipes, whatever else you've got that just so the woman in the saw, what I don't understand is I can see playing a saw. She has a little bow that she uses. But how did she figure out how to make those different sounds and make the saw play Amazing Grace? I still don't understand that. I'll never understand that because I don't know enough about it. But I'll wonder, and I wish I'd been there to see it. Well, my, my, my guess about the saw is that I assume that she's playing on a saw that it like it descends in the amount of metal there is as a, like a triangle. Right. Yeah. So and the top of the saw um, or from a musical standpoint, the, the bottom of the saw. Right. Because it has the most metal. Um, it would probably have the lowest pitch. Um, so she probably was she probably like, like I'm just kind of thinking of like what I would do like if I were in this person's position if I just had a saw laying around in my room and and I had a, a bow and some risin um, I would kind of like experiment and like play the bow like pretty much everywhere on the saw then I would record um, by maybe putting like a dot on the mm -hmm. saw for every like perfect pitch I see um, and it also depends on the scale you're using too, right? Whether it's chromatic or sofeggio, but anyway, that's a, that's a different topic. And then, um, finally, once she got like accustomed and presumably she rehearsed enough, she was able to record that, that video. Yeah. I, I, I suppose I could, I could go back and read more about what happened there, but just, it, it's like, how did someone discover coffee? We were talking about <laughs> We drink. So who decided that if we just knock these beans together and pour hot water over and we can drink that? It's the same thing. So you're sitting around looking at the saw one day. I think I could play that saw. Let me see what happens. So that's that's what I love because putting together these sounds uh, comes out of some inspiration, some kind of curiosity about what can I do? And it's the same thing, I think, with writing lyrics. You're struck by an image. So, for instance, um, The Police is King of Pain, just to pull out another song I've listened to a lot more lately. And I remember a friend of mine saying, just think about all the different images that he's approximating to what it feels like to what it's like to feel like your soul is isolated and, you know, on a on a ledge or up in that top of that tree. And so, he just keeps, Sting keeps coming up with this kind of stuff, uh, these images that poets have always used. Um, I'm trying to use them too. When I look at my writing desk and see my lamp, I've got a story that 
I, I assume will eventually come out in the junction. It's actually a poem about the writing lamp that I use on my desk that was almost thrown away in my mother's house. But I started thinking of an older poem, a William Carlos Williams poem to base my poem on so that I was using the same kind of meter. Williams doesn't use meter that much, but he does manage to, to find some that he'll plug in. So that, that poem means a lot to me because it was an image that was coming out of my soul and, and my past. And so I keep thinking, well, who are the cinnamon girls? Or to get back to John Lennon, he's going to write a song about his mother. And so he's going to pour everything into that song and he's going to use primal scream to, to help him develop that song. But it, it comes out in this stark way that I know not everyone liked that song. It's, it's almost going to push you to not like it. But for whatever reason, and I certainly didn't go through his experiences, I felt I understood that level of pain, what it's like to have something and to lose it and to not understand what that relationship was like and why he was cast off from his mother. You know, I think what we're talking about has a lot to do, whether it's learning new sounds, learning how to play new sounds on odd or weird instruments or household items. Um, and Terry, Terry, you mentioned, you know, there was some sort of, um, uh, I guess, creativity involved or, or something that, that, that drove that person to do that. And then you turned it around to lyrics, like with Sting or with poetry. Um, all of that, to me, is wrapped up in the emotion of creating something. You know, you feel compelled sometimes to do something, and that could be a, a sound, or that could be a word, or a series of words that become a story, or a lyric, or a poem. I know when I the the, the most writing I, when I started writing on Medium, it was pretty much all poetry, I think, and then uh, slowly gravitated towards writing about music because that's what I wanted to do. And then I found Noah, and then the riff, and then all that kind of took over but i still do write poetry uh, quite a bit and when i do it uh it's funny you brought up sting because and, and that that song by the police because i don't try and tell a story um what you said terry one of the things you said uh, an image pops into my head something i've seen you mentioned your lamp right or i would see something or i would more often hear a phrase in my head could even just be two words together that i like the sound of and I'll write it down, typically in my phone, if I'm out, I'll just make sure I remember it. And then the rest of it just comes from that. It may wind up telling a story, but that was never the intention. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is, you know, it depends on the mood or whatnot, or if the idea is fleshed out big, you know, uh, uh, enough to create a story on its own. But sometimes there's just that word, that phrase, that sound, that note, and I don't know, you record it somewhere somehow and the rest just seems to follow and sometimes it makes sense and sometimes it doesn't just like when you were talking about neil young um with some of his lyrics it might not need to make any sense but it came out so organically and from such an emotional place i think you 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 can live with that result well the romantic poets would call this a spontaneous overflow of emotion so i think <laughs> 
doing. I know when I've read Noah's pieces too, when he's been in the bar trying to play some music and he gets hit on by women and we're all kind of going, well, that would be pretty cool. But I also know Noah's trying to, trying to create <laughs> something there too. So you might not want to be interrupted, although you do need to look up and see who that is hitting on you and <laughs> making sure you're not missing out on some life, you know, life partnership. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I can I can visualize Noah with his notebook sitting around someplace uh, near his home or outside. And this is all of us who write have our places, but we also have to get outside of our place so that we can see the images that are both inside where we just were or what. This is why I walk every day with my dog, not only for our exercise, but I'm always encountering moods. I may not see something, but I, I can visualize a street. And I wrote about this not too long ago. The street looks like a street that I grew up living on. And when the sky is a particular shade of blue, kind of gorgeous as it is today here in South Carolina, it evokes these memories of, of different points in my childhood. And those points are always not too far from the music I was also listening to. And so how do I capture that in words? So when I finally come back inside or if I've taken my notebook with me, I just sit there and try to play around with it. But usually without writing for too long, a song that I've been listening to will enter in. And you're right. I may not start out with a story, but by the time I'm done, I have a story because what people who don't write are missing, and I tell this to my students all the time, particularly the creative writers, don't worry about that you don't know where you're gonna get to when you start out. That's the fun of it. Because once you start writing, you don't know what's gonna happen. And all of a sudden, whether it's an image or whether it's an insight, it usually comes. And I don't know of any better feeling other than for me, watching my children be born and grow, or or there are a couple of other little images like that that mean as much to me, certainly not as a writer. I didn't know I was going to get to that place. I didn't know that this memory was going to come out. I didn't know that I have a theme. Mm -hmm. But you don't you don't quit writing because you're not sure. You that's when you're supposed to write. You're not sure. Let's write. Honestly, yeah. like, this is such great advice. Um, you, you know, um, like, last night, I had an idea of, like, a story I really wanted to tell that happened to me yesterday. Um, so I went to that 24-hour uh, pizza place that I've written about before. Um, and I was like, you know, I'm just super hungry. You know, they, they make really good burgers, too. So, you know, I got a burger. Um, but then there was just, like, a total, a total douchebag like sitting next to me and I had to sit next to him because you know there was literally no seating and I just asked him hey do you mind if I like pop a squat you know and he was like go ahead and he couldn't fathom the idea that I just kind of wanted to sit in silence um and not just like talk about whatever he wanted to talk about so then at the at, like like at some point he was just, I, I I told him like hey you know thank you, but would you mind if I just, like, sat in silence, you know, blah, 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 and he was like, dude, you're sitting at my table. Like, he was to he was a total dick about it. And, like, I just, this was, like, at 10.30 last night, so I just didn't have the energy to just, like, 
fight him on it i was like you know what i said i was like you're right and i just sat at a different table and then like five minutes passed i was like this is just so damn awkward that i just like i gotta go home i gotta pay i gotta go home which is exactly what i did but the point is that i went there to write a piece and then by the time i got home i was just like i was not in the mood at all to write a piece and i think the thing is that we get a lot of this like writing advice on medium and you know just like a lot of advice for like other sort of you know artistic endeavors um whether it's like music on youtube writing on medium blah 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 but i think one thing that is just like not thoroughly addressed compared to like make time for writing and you know blah 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 is that you, you need to fucking feel it you know what i mean like you you really need to feel and be in the mood because like the mood that you're in of like whatever action you do is completely reflection reflected on the action your writing is for me at least my writing's not going to be good if, if i'm just like you know not like feeling what i what i want to write about so i mean it's a, it's a challenge right because we're all very busy in the 2020s um but, but i think it's really important what you just said terry well, I appreciate that. I, I, I think that there are these moments that, so that I was thinking about you and this guy sitting at the table and my response would be, buddy, this is not your fucking table. You are definitely <laughs> sitting here, but that is not your table. And what else am I supposed to do? But so I would want to write about that just like I haven't done this yet, but I really want to write about the last barber that I went to and my wife cuts my hair now, so we just forget all that. <laughs> I, I, I went, I went this to this going. guy, and <laughs> I'd, known this, I'd known this guy for a long time. I'd known him since he was a kid, and he inherited his father's barbershop. And I, I remembered him so well because he loved the Beatles, and he was trying to bond with my wife and me over the Beatles. And we are maybe 15 years older than... And he was, but I remember him when he was about 16, he had long hair, he, his parents just hated his long hair and they hated the Beatles. And so he found us through, we were all in Amnesty International at that point. And so he latched on to my wife and me. And so then he became my barber at some point. And so I go in to get a haircut one day and it's about 1230 and he's sitting at the little table in his shop and he's eating a sandwich. And so I just go in and sit down because I figure, okay, the shop says open, whatever. And he's, he looks at me and says, would you mind coming back in a little while? I don't like to people to watch me while I eat. <laughs> so, all right, I'll, I'll leave. I'll, I'll, and I'm thinking, well, why don't you just close up? <laughs> close up for a half hour. What do you expect people to do at this point? And it was so awkward. I went back that day because I thought I'm not going to give him the satisfaction or whatever I thought. But then I quit going because I thought I can't see you anymore. I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> you can't be my barber. We've crossed a line. <laughs> and that's okay. Because then he turned in some kind of right wing nut and, and you, you'd have to watch Fox news with him if you were in his shop and I'm not doing that either. Shocker. Yeah. So, yeah, I got to talk about that one day, and I'll, I'll find the appropriate Beatles song to accompany the story. <laughs> it won't be Sexy Sadie, I know that, but I, I no. what it will be. <laughs> Let's see, how many songs about food do they have? Maybe that would be something to... Uh, this, this guy's food obsession canceled his, his business um, 
and his and his customer. Like, it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is just, yeah. Yeah, I'll think about like Mean Mr. Mustard or something. There uh, you go. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's funny. I don't know. I hadn't thought about that. So thanks, Noah. Your story kind of triggered that. So I'm going to put that down on my list of what to write next uh, pieces. Yeah. That was just like, I, I, I'm still like a little annoyed with it, to be honest with you, because like it just happened in the past like 14 hours. But, um, you know, whatever, like this guy was sitting alone, pretty inebriated. So, you know, I think he probably has a sadder life than I do, but I don't have a sad life. So, um, you know, actually, I wanted to show you guys um, what we were talking about, like 10, 15 minutes ago with the sauce. So I, I, I um, so I have a spring, I detached it from my pen. Um, and then I, I don't know if you're able to see it, but basically, like, I tied it around my my, oh, yeah. my uh, top spring, my my top string, and um, my hypothesis, and, you know, this is, like, not scientific at all, but I like using science words to make myself <laughs> feel good. Um, but, um, you know, my, my hypothesis is that because this is made out of metal, um, the, the sound wave is going to reflect on the spring somehow. Um, and what I discovered while playing it, um, a few nights ago is that if I just play it like in the middle of a fret, oh, actually, and honestly, like, I have no idea what that pitch is. It might be a microtone because it's like in the middle of the fret. Now, now what's interesting is that with, with the guitar, you know, I used to think that I'd be able to play a microtone by just like putting my finger like in the middle of the fret rather than just like right before the bridge. And there's really no difference. And the reason why is that the bridge, um, it stops like at the same point either way. So you're still going to be playing the, the same pitch. But what's interesting is that I believe with this with this um, spring, you could play microtones with it because there's no bridge stopping you from playing wherever you are on the fretboard. So yeah, that's what I wanted to show you guys. <laughs> you you are you're going to create some new sounds today. I can I can guarantee it. <laughs> you're going to make. So. I hope he does. That, that yeah, it's onto something. Yeah, yeah. That's that's uh, and that's you know you talk about being creative or you know just a, a drive or an inspiration to do something we just kind of lived it right you were talking about <laughs> it earlier the spring was there you attached it to the guitar like it's people need to do stuff like that you know that's how writing happens that's how music happens that's how that's how anything happens really but when you're talking specifically about being creative uh, or, or something within art um that's it's a great thing to watch develop you know, right. And and to the people listening, like we were doing this via video. So we're seeing this, but you're at least hearing it uh, develop as we watch it develop. Yeah, I, I, there's an exercise I use in creative writing uh, because it's so strange. Students will sign up for that course and some of them are they know what they want to do right from day one. So it's just kind of here's some three hours credit for you to do what you want to do. But others they take it because they're curious about well, what what can I write? And so they'll show up uh, in my office and just say, I don't think I have any stories to write about. 
and I'm thinking, oh, sure you do. And so one of the one of the prompts I'll give them is to think about, um, say they're in fifth grade or say they're in third grade. Not only who was your teacher back then, but where'd you go? What was life like? And then I'll always add, and what were you listening to musically? And then they start thinking, and, and the most obvious question they'll ask is, I can write about that? <laughs> so what, what do you think you're going to write about? Yeah. You, you're not going to write about the definition of truth. No one wants to read that. You're going to want to write about your experience and, and that kind of truth. That's how you'll get to truth, your own truth. And so it's just so amazing to me. And I was probably like this too. What stories could I possibly have to write about that anyone would be interested in? Uh, but you you find that that's, that's not a good question to ask. You just need to get triggered and get a prompt and start writing. And so there are all sorts of those. But once it doesn't take many before you just get on a roll and so that's that's my wife kids me all the time about why do you have such a good memory? Well, because I can remember songs and I can remember what I was doing when those songs were popular. I can remember what happened when I first heard some of those songs and who I was in love with and uh, what kind of angst I was going through in my life. And you just name a song from that period and I can probably tell you a story about it. But I can also name the specific time. So I've just always been like that. I've noticed what I've noticed. I've heard this kind of music and it's stuck. And I have that, you know, some people call it a sickness. Some people call it a real strength. I think it is a strength, but I'm sometimes too obsessed by it. So writing really helps that out too, because I can find release and then I can also find, well, what does this story and the song that's really at its base mean to me? How do I say that and communicate that? You know, I, I'm exactly the same way as you are, Terry, when it comes to that. And I agree. And I've heard it's a sickness uh, at times, um, but I agree that it is a strength. And I don't know. I know many people in my life who love music the way the three of us do. I know people who music is sort of just there and it's background. And I know people who just really don't care about it at all. So I don't expect those people to understand that. Um, but it is incredibly vivid for me to go back and, and hear a song and know what I was doing when I first saw everything you described. I completely relate to it. Um, and I think that's what separates, you know, writers or musicians or just fans who who are just so the people who write at the riff really um it is their release and they do it for many reasons and one of them probably whether they know it or not is because it is it's it's just showering them with all these memories that you're talking about but not everyone understands i once had a conversation with my sister who's uh, about two years younger than me and today is actually her birthday so i need to call her um i once She's a background music person, and I, I tried so hard one time. I, I played a live version of Pearl Jam's Better Man, and it is not a favorite of mine by any stretch. I, I, it's a rather simple song that Eddie Vedder wrote when he was a teenager, he said, um, with his first band. Uh, but it's catchy, and it's a you know, pop rock song that, that, that works. But I played her a live version from Madison Square Garden, probably a show that I was actually at. 
Because when you have 20 some odd thousand people singing at the same time and the band stops playing and just yeah. lets the crowd do it, I don't care what the song is. If, you, if you're like us, every hair you have is going to stand up. The chills are going to happen. You're going to even, even well up because the emotion is just there. And I played it for her. And I looked at her. I'm like, nothing? She's like, no, nothing. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. How is that possible? How could you say, how, does, uh, how are you not completely floored right now by hearing 20,000 people sing? And she wasn't. And it was at that moment I realized, okay, I'm different. And so mm-hmm. what you described is, is um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm completely with you. And, and I think that's what makes this community that we've been talking about so special because it's people like that that we, I guess, gravitate towards. Um, yeah. So, you know, last summer, uh, our colleague Jessica Lee McMillan did the challenge about Bossa Nova which I think that was the moment where I was writing and dabbling here and there, but I thought, wow, this is going to be fun. And the riff kind of opened up for me at that point because she was writing about sounds that I knew, again, since I was a, a child, my my parents, they were, you know, they were into their own music pretty much, whether that was Sinatra or Glenn Miller or or whatever they liked. But they started listening to Herb Alpert and really liked Herb Alpert, and they even went to Herb Alpert's show, and I think the first band was Sergio Mendez, and so they started buying that music, and I thought, what is this? This is really, and I was a kid, but when Jessica started writing and issuing that challenge, I had forgotten about that part of my life, about Herb Alpert, about my parents, and I started writing about all those kind of Latin and bossa nova sounds, whether it was full-on jazz and Stan Getz, or whether it got even even stranger poppy rock with Santana and Malo and some of the other El Chicano and bands that uh, were popular in the late 60s and early 70s. And so I don't know, you might remember how long that challenge went, but I think she had it going for most of the summer, and it was just an interchange with a few of us, but that was that would have been an area that I wouldn't have remembered so well, and maybe ever. But because of the riff and because of that challenge, I started rethinking that again. And so it opened this whole other little compartment in my life back up to me. You know, so, so that challenge, it actually went on for 30 days, which was pretty remarkable because for 30 days straight, she just wrote all these pieces. And, you, you know, I think that challenge just demonstrated that and, and you know i experienced this relatively recently and honestly not anymore because i've been listening to a lot of new music recently not radiohead um but you know anyway um i i think that sometimes like we all fall into a musical rut where it's like oh you like like especially and, and i i can't imagine how painful it must be for both of you guys because you guys are literally like walking music libraries um when you're like in a musical rut you're probably thinking like how could i of all people be in a musical rut when like i know so much music and stuff like that um but i think it happens to everyone and and, and the thing is that i i think it's more important um, or it's very important at least to, to, to discover new music, to discover new sounds, to be open to the idea and to the opportunity of just like seeing something different or hearing because it's music, like just hearing something different, you know? So, 
um yeah I, I think that's very interesting i love world music um and you know we talked about this on a on a different podcast but i um i really love um the arab music that i've listened to in my life so um but i i, I recognize that that's only one region of the world right okay. um so there, there's just could you imagine like there's just so many places around the world and quite frankly i would argue that there are probably places around the world where we have no idea or like no knowledge on their music and it's just waiting for us to discover it yeah so you know my wife is from iran and mm -hmm. her family is was more into classical iranian music which is not a music that most of us have ears for because it is it's really painful. It's it's about pain. It's about love and loss and so forth. But there's a certain style of singing where it's it's in jazz, you know what scatting is. Well, I don't know that there's a there's a term for it in Iranian music. It's not scatting, but it's where someone just takes off vocally and improv improvises sounds. And oh, wow. it's, it's just something that our ears, our Western ears, aren't used to. And so I thought for a long time, that's the only kind of Iranian music there is. And I'm not a big fan of it. I can't listen to it for very long. And they would play every now and then some other older singers, and they'd be all right. So I had no idea there was Persian pop music. And let me tell you, you just ought to explore. I don't, I can't tell you in the names of any artists, but it's kind of like Korean pop. If you start going down the road of Persian pop music, now it's heavy synthesized music, but you'll, you'll see a different side to the somber, dour, Iranian looking people that you're kind of used to and understand the joyous side to them and the loving side and the fun side. And so when I finally heard it, we were visiting some of my wife's relatives in Madrid and they put on this music. And I looked there and said, why did your family ever play this kind of music? It'd be for the same reason my dad always listened to Glenn Miller or Benny Goodman, because for him, that was all that existed, big band music. And there was no real pop music in his, in his world. I mean, those guys were kind of pop at their time, but not for me. And so I realized that that's, that is the way we are that we don't recognize what else is going on in the world or even in each other's lives. So, so again, we got some of that music and then my wife started listening a little bit more to the things I like. And so here's this woman who grew up in Iran, lived her first two decades there, who's completely in love with the music of Tom Waits. And I have no reason, wow. I can't explain that to anybody. I love Tom Waits and I put it on and she said, oh, I really like that. Hmm. I'm shrugging because I have no explanation for it. <laughs> well, without without knowing anything of that story except what you literally just said, I'm just going to venture a guess that because Tom Waits, not only is he brilliant, but he is he's brilliant at being sad, and he's brilliant at at describing pain, um, and the way you described Iranian uh, um, or per well. I guess the Persian side, the, when you refer to it as pop, but the the older uh, music was about pain. You said so. Maybe she's just relating. Somehow she can take what she heard growing up, and Tom Waits became the 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 Western version of that. She identified with his pain, maybe. So not not too long ago, well, certainly now it's been about three years, I guess. Uh, we had the 
opportunity to see Rhiannon Giddens play right maybe 15 minutes from our house. And my wife didn't know anything about her. I knew that she had been in the Carolina Chocolate Drops. And I knew she was playing, doing solo tours. And she's multi-talented, plays many different instruments. She's always barefoot on stage. And so we were in this crazy, intimate little space called the Spinning Jenny up in Greer, which is, again, 15 minutes from my house. And you know there were maybe 100 people there. But it was one of the greatest performances of our lives. And, you know, that's another kind of music that we both loved, this kind of blend of folk and gospel, a little country, because Rhiannon Giddens is mixed race, and she has many musical backgrounds and, and pieces of heritage to draw on. And so she was so personable and was able to connect. And so the audience there was such a fascinating blend of young people and very old people and people like my wife, who isn't so musically inclined, but knows what she likes. And when she likes it, the passions run deep. And so in that way, we're really connected to. Very, very cool. I, I, you know, Noah, you and I talk about this. I think it was on the last podcast, maybe, or conversation between us and everything is blending together lately because of uh, uh, how much activity is happening at the riff but um to the point of this conversation we're all having now i think a great way of dis of discovering new music to get out of our comfort zones which is kind of what we're talking about a bit is for me one of the things i do and noah i was thinking of this when you were talking um a, a bit earlier i go back to when i discovered what I considered in my life at the time different music, which was David Bowie, because up until that it was it was all this other, you know, top 40 AM radio stuff. And I heard Space Oddity. I know I've written about this and I've talked about it, um, but I heard that song and these sounds. And I didn't know what to make of it. And it took me on a, a journey that I've, I'm still on with with Bowie, uh, but with with anything different. It allowed me to hear different sounds and appreciate them um but i so I, I i can go back to where i came from basically that was my point you can go back to where you're from and you know rediscover some things but also uh and noah this is the point i was talking about where, where i i mentioned this i love to learn about an artist's inspiration mm -hmm. who they like you know an mm -hmm. artist i'm really like say say tom waits right i want to know where he comes from why does he write this way why does he sing about this stuff why does it come across in the way that it does? Um, who influenced him? Who did he listen to? And when you learn about that, it's weird. You'll find that, okay, a couple of people might make sense. I mean, Leonard Cohen probably, and you know, people like that. Yeah, it makes sense to me. But then he may say somebody like Jackson 5, you know, who you brought up earlier, Terry. Like, they just you don't know where these people get their inspiration from. And then sometimes you hear artists that you've never, or hear of artists you've never heard of. And because you like the artist uh, you're researching, you go and you listen to who influenced them. And that's a great way to discover new music, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. God, that you mentioned David Bowie, who's usually on my mind, um, or if not in the forefront of my mind, just lurking. Um, I'm reading David Mitchell's Utopia Avenue right now. That's another great thing to do if you love music. Read rock and roll novels. And <laughs> this All is, day, yeah. Right? 
And it's about a fictional band called Utopia Avenue. But just one day they run into David Bowie. And this would have been circa 1968 when he's not popular at all. But he's, right. you know, there are people in, in London who are starting to recognize who he is. And so it's this fictional meeting of the band and David Bowie. And again, David Mitchell writes like you're right there, too. He's got you in the characters' imaginations as well as their experiences. But I think about... Those days, if I could have, if I could be anywhere at any time, it might be in London, right in the 67, 68 period where some of the bands who've had their heyday are starting to not tour anymore. And this new wave is starting to come along, glam, glitter, whatever, and think about how it's about to explode. And you just, you know, there's no way to have known that, which is what's so exciting about what's coming. We don't know what's coming musically we don't know who's out there is just going to shake us up again and as long as i'm alive it's going to be an exciting thing to see who's coming along and as you said rob who those people are influenced by because we'll make all these great connections complete completely and uh <laughs> you 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 just jogged my memory on one of my favorite quotes and it's from a guy we all just spoke about earlier and it's one of my favorite artists of all time joe strummer the future is unwritten yeah. He, you know, and you don't know what's coming and you, you don't um, you can't shut the door or your eyes to that just because you have this bedrock of, of information and stuff you already love. Um, you know, keep everything open and, and, and see what's next, especially with music or, or writing or art. I mean, you know, people are popping up left and right uh, with inspiration and creativity that maybe we never thought of. And if we're closed to it, we'll, we're going to miss out. So what I know that someone novel called, sorry, it's Utopia Avenue. Oh, okay. Yeah. Write it down on that, on that wrist right now. <laughs> yeah. I don't have, I don't have a paper. So it's a really, <laughs> it's so good. And I'm not even sure how I found it. I've just, you know, one one path leads to another. But I, the other thing I was going to say is someone on the riff, and it might have been you, Rob, because I always forget, wrote about uh, Phoebe Bridgers on Saturday Night Live. Uh, I, yeah, I did. So, someone else uh, did. I don't remember who. But yeah. I, okay, yeah. I know I did as well, right? Yeah. So um, right before uh, COVID shut us down, I was in a, teaching a film class, and I'd been playing some music. And so I do this every now and then. I just ask the students, so tell me someone that you're listening to that I need to listen to. And this was literally the last class that we had. And this young woman, she's she's really bright, but I didn't know what her musical tastes were at all. And so she just says, you have to start listening to Phoebe Bridgers. And I'd never heard, <clears throat> never heard of her just a little over a year ago so i immediately went home and i started downloading her music music and i thought wow i really like that and so that's that's the other thing if you don't ask people even people that you think um well you know you probably like who knows some really popular band that i'm not gonna like so their answers are always intriguing and you owe it to yourself to check out what they've been listening to what they are listening to because now again i've downloaded everything phoebe bridgers has and completely in love with with her sound and what she's writing about and i did get to see the saturday night live episode they rebroadcasted and 
that song, This Is The End, is now one of my favorite songs. God, it's so good. And Mine too. Videos go to, oh, man, it's so good. That's yeah. such an important point. Like, you just, you need to ask people, right? Like, I, I feel like, you know, the old uh, adage, like, you know, assuming makes an ass of you and me. <laughs> like, we, we need to stop assuming <laughs> that, um, you know, people have, like, a certain taste. Um I, th I think there's always, you know, some sort of buried treasure in someone's mind. Exactly. Yeah, we, we don't, we, we like to think we know it all. We like to think we have all of the answers uh, or the best musical tastes. And, um, you know, there can be arguments for that. Maybe, maybe somebody does always, I have a couple of friends who they never seem to, uh, I, I, every time I ask them something, they come up with something brilliant that I love. Like they're just, I don't know, they're on another level. So there are people like that. But for the most part, yeah, we need other people to tell us where to go and what to look for. You know, like that's what I keep saying. We all keep saying we have our own stuff, but, you know, um, it's not enough. It's never enough. And, you know, there's not a musician out there that would that would say, um, don't explore, don't expand, don't evolve. You know, you, you 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 can't, you know, you stop moving, you die. So, right. well, that's that's the other beauty of the riff, because every day you find someone else's several stories about bands that they love, songs, concerts. And I might not I, I usually know the band, but I might not have listened or the artist. Um, gosh, I can't even think of the name someone wrote. I'd have to look at my. Hmm. I'd have to look at my uh, Apple playlist, which I probably can't see at this point. I'm going to find it, though. So I didn't know this band at all. They're going to come up in just a second. Uh, Mother Hips. The Mother Hips. So... You know, I had no idea who the mother hips were. Now I know. I read that article, I think, yesterday or the day before. Um, they were combining or comparing, was it Green Day was a part of that article, mm -hmm. I think, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. right. I remember the article. Yep. And I didn't know them either. I have I never heard the name before in my life. Uh, mother hips. <laughs> You know, uh, Rob and I talked about this um, before on, on a podcast with um, Ascended Breath, um, where, you know, we're just he he's um, he's he's actually a writer um, on the riff. I'm not going to mention his name for the sake of keeping his uh, stage <laughs> name on brand. AB. AB, yeah. So, you know, we were just talking about how, like, there's just so much good music coming out today. That it's it's really tough because you know like all of us have been in situations where we listen to the same album for months um but but it's it, 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 it's tough because it's like there's so many of these albums that are coming out that could probably do the same thing that are so good that like you could listen to them for months on end but then if you were to listen to like let's say i think the example i brought up rob was like three great new albums every day for a 365 day year, you'd still be missing out on a lot of good news. Absolutely. Music. Yeah. Can't, you can't listen to it all, but you know, maybe it's our job to help people find uh, as much of it as possible. 
and they can put it in a queue and, and get to it when they can. Um, and for us too, for us to do the same thing. But, you know, I see the riff, uh, I see the podcast, I see conversations with writers and readers um, as a bit of an obligation at this point, you know, um, trying to get as much information out to people. Um, there's, like you said, there's so much good music. And there's, so, there's so much great writing, too. You yeah. Know, not just about music, but writing and, you know, writing overall. But um, there's so many interesting people to to discover. Um, and I think that's what this ultimately is about. I mean, yes, it's wrapped up in music. It's wrapped up in writing. Um, but it, ultimately, it's 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 interesting people that we can learn from. And I know I have. And, and I think everyone we've spoken to so far seems to be on that same page. I mean, I think Terry is, is, is you know, um, a highlight of that because of all the work he's done in and outside of music, as well as being a professor and all that. So there's a, there's a ton of information you can get from people just because of music. And on that beautiful note, this has been the longest riff podcast we've ever recorded so far. We knew it would be, though. We yeah, knew it we, would be. We, we I, I'm fairly long-winded. So. <laughs> no, but there's so much, like, there's a lot of depth to, you know, your writing and, and your musical insight. Um, I think that's why so many people like reading what you write. You, you give a ton of information in a very manageable and, and, and easy-to-read um um package i guess so we knew that once we started talking about things that we were going to get into them deeply because that would actually be a disservice to you if we didn't because that wouldn't be what you're about so it was supposed to be long i think everyone should buy terry's book secrets i'm dying to tell you um again you cannot see it because you know i'm waving it at the camera but secrets i'm dying to tell you terry bark you see you have no excuse to not buy this book now because i literally spelled it out for you um terry bar living legend at the rip thank you so much um before we go just really quick credits all words of whoever said those words are owned by whoever said those words um and original music composed by noah levy regardless of how rudimentary it is thank you everyone thank you guys <laughs>